those of you who have not been here, maybe visiting for the first time or coming to see family, I want you to know that we are in a series on the Gospel of John. And we are making our way through John chapter 6, which is one of the longest discourses, one of the longest teachings that Jesus gives in the Gospel of John. And he gives this teaching at a synagogue in Capernaum. Over the past two weeks, I've tried to show how in this story there are echoes of the Passover, echoes of the exodus out of Egypt, and echoes of the sojourning in the wilderness. All of these echoes are reverberating in the background of this story. And so Jesus is tying this teaching and this story to the story of the Old Testament, trying to get the people to understand something about himself. In this story, Jesus is portrayed as the true and better Moses. So like Moses, Jesus feeds a crowd of people a Passover meal of bread, and then he leads them on a new exodus against the wind and across the sea. And then like Moses, Jesus confronts the people with their sin and challenges their unbelief. And like Moses, Jesus performs signs and points people to look up to heaven and believe the Lord God and obey his word as they travel through this wasteland we call the world. Well, two weeks ago, we looked at the story of the sign of Jesus multiplying bread and fishes and feeding a crowd. Last week, we started to look at the meaning of the sign, and this week, we're going to continue looking at the meaning of the sign. And then next week, we will come to the crossroads of decision at the end of this discourse. Our sermon text for today is John 6, 41 to 59. You can read along in your worship order or in your copy of the New Testament if you would like to follow along. If you are willing and able, I invite you to stand and pay close attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord says, The Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. And all the church says, Amen. may be seated. One of my Facebook friends is a relatively new dad, and this week he posted something on Facebook that relates to the story under consideration today. He said, I have discovered my kids eating philosophy. Step one, demand a certain food item that is not currently on their plate and probably not in the house. Step two, as soon as said food item is placed on their plate, immediately chuck it on the floor. Step three, wail despondently. Step four, repeat step one. Now this is exactly what the Jewish community did in the wilderness in the Old Testament, and it is what the Jewish crowd is doing in front of Jesus at Capernaum. They grumbled when there was no bread, and then they grumbled when there was plenty of bread. So the crowd is grumbling here because they do not like Jesus' truth claim that He is the bread of life. But instead of dealing with the truth claim directly, they change the subject and they begin to look for all of the natural reasons why Jesus cannot possibly be the Son of God who came from heaven. And so they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Now the point is clear. Since Jesus is the son of Joseph and Mary, and since he comes from a well-known family known by many Galileans, he simply cannot be the son of God or the bread of life who came down from heaven. That's the way the crowd was thinking. So this is a backhanded way of saying, we don't believe you, Jesus, and we think you're crazy. Well, now would be a good time to remind you of something we heard a few weeks ago. Remember when Jesus left Samaria and he went to Galilee, he testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. And initially, it looked like he had honor because when he came to Galilee, everyone praised him and they welcomed him with lots of fanfare. But now, a few weeks have gone by, and they've seen Jesus in action, they've heard Him teach, they've experienced a few signs, and they're beginning to reject Him, just as He said they would. They are dishonoring the prophet who, is, who was to come into the world. They are deposing the man that they wanted to make king by force just one day ago, and they are dissing an ordained rabbi. So Jesus is having a bad day at the synagogue in Capernaum. What the crowd does is they gather some flimsy empirical evidence in order to make a case for not believing Jesus' truth claims. So from one angle, we can see that their case against Jesus seems scientifically irrefutable. 
except for one thing. They make a case that is not based on all the facts. Jesus was not the son of Joseph. He was the son of Father God and the son of Mary by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is the seed of woman, the word made flesh for the life of the world. The crowd assumes that Jesus is the son of Joseph, but we all know what happens when you assume, right? In response, Jesus simply tells them to stop grumbling. It's interesting, he doesn't deal with their, uh, their baseless claims. He tells them to stop grumbling. Now this seems rather nitpicky. Of all the things he could say, why stop grumbling? Well again, if you know the Old Testament story well, as this people did, then you know that God's people got into more trouble for grumbling than for doing just about anything else. The Israelites grumbled repeatedly and incessantly about their hardships, about their leadership, about worship. And now the crowd is acting like their forefathers and grumbling about all kinds of things. You can almost see Jesus doing a, a, a face palm and a head shake as he looks at these people thinking, you must have forgotten God's zero tolerance policy towards grumbling and complaining. There's nothing that stirs God's anger quite like grumbling. And the reason for that is because grumbling flows from an ungrateful, discontent, covetous, and unbelieving heart. As Tim Keller says, the way of hell is pettiness, jealousy, self-pity, harshness, always being unhappy. Grumbling is a seed of something terribly poisonous and toxic. To grumble is to speak the curses of hell. But to give thanks is to sing the praises of heaven. Now sadly, for some of us, grumbling is sort of the default mode and then gratitude is just this optional custom setting that we hope to turn on every once in a while. But I gotta tell you, it should be the other way around. We should be giving thanks for all things in all circumstances. Giving thanks should be our default mode. Grumbling, if it ever pops up, should be the optional custom setting, perhaps a virus that we can eradicate. Now once Jesus gets the crowd to calm down a bit, he begins to teach them one of the most important truths that he ever taught. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now this teaching raises lots of questions, and I gotta tell you, lots of ink has been spilled by people who are trying to explain away what Jesus actually said. Last week we heard Jesus say, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. But this week we hear him say, no one is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So you probably feel like there, there might be a bit of a contradiction here. There's not, but it can feel that way. So how do you make sense of it? What do you do with it? How do you resolve the tension in what Jesus is teaching? Well, let me show you that it's a little bit easier than you might imagine. Here's how it goes. All things considered, Jesus is saying, 
since no one is able to come to me in and of themselves, the Father draws and hauls and pulls and drags them to me with cords of love. By His Word and His Spirit, He draws sinners from danger to safety, from death to life, from the dragon to Jesus. And in this way, the Father makes sure that everyone He has given to Jesus will actually come to Jesus and put their faith in Jesus and be saved by Jesus. Now, chances are that by now we have all heard of the tragic story out of Orlando. Not that one that you just thought about, but this other one about the father and the son who were wading in the water at Disney. A gator came out of nowhere, grabbed the little boy, dragged him into the water, and killed him. The father actually grabbed his son and tried to drag him back to safety, but despite all of, despite all of his valiant efforts, he was not able to overcome the gator. His son was not able to help himself in the situation, and so he lost his son, and the son lost his life. Tragic story. I want to say it doesn't make that man a bad father. It makes him a human father with all of the limitations of a human father. It is a terribly sad story, and our hearts go out to him and that family. And we should pray for them as they grieve this terrible loss. But I want to say that there's something else that sad, saddens me as I reflected on the text and that story this week. What saddens me is that so many people, even professing Christians, believe that the same thing holds true for God the Father. It's as if the Father is not able to snatch His children from the dragon and drag them to safety. In other words, we think God the Father has the same limitations, same inabilities that human fathers have in the face of danger. And yet Jesus insists that the Father's ability to draw us to the Son is greater than the dragon's ability to drag us away from Him. The Father's ability to give us to Jesus is greater than our ability to give ourselves to other things. And the Son's ability to keep us safe and secure is greater than our ability to keep ourselves safe. And it's even greater than our inability to keep ourselves secure. So I want you to think about what's happening in this story. So far in John's Gospel, we have seen that no one is able to do what Jesus can do. No one is able to change water into wine. No one is able to heal a servant from a great distance. No one is able to make a lame man walk. No one is able to feed thousands with five loaves and two fish. No one except Jesus alone. And here Jesus emphasizes two things. He emphasizes the total inability of any man to save himself. And he emphasizes the total ability of God to save all his people. The good news is that God does not help those who can help themselves. The good news is that God helps those 
who cannot help themselves. No one is able to save himself, but Jesus is able to save everyone whom the Father gives him, and he is able to lose no one whom the Father draws to him. In other words, Jesus is able to save you and keep you saved totally, completely, and permanently. Now the fact that we were drawn by the Father to come to Jesus and that we will never be cast out by Jesus gives us a deep sense of assurance of salvation for what God does for us, not for what we do of ourselves. It is all of grace and none of works. So that at the end of the day, we will say to God be all the glory and all the praise and all of the honor. None of it to us. But here's the million dollar question. How does the Father draw sinners to Christ? Sinners who are being dragged away by the dragon. Well, Jesus answers this clearly when he says, it is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God and everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. In other words, the notion of the Father drawing and the Father teaching go hand in hand. The Father draws people to Jesus by teaching them about Jesus. He teaches them the grace and truth of Jesus. He talks about the person and work of Jesus. He points people to Jesus. And He teaches us to come to Jesus and live. Now the word draw simply means drag Paul or pull. It is used in John's gospel when Peter pulls a sword to cut off the ear of a servant. I think he was aiming for the head. And when Peter drags a net ashore or when the disciples haul a net full of fish into their boat. I like the way Calvin explains it when he says, as to the kind of drawing, it is not violent so as to compel men by external force. But it is still a powerful impulse of the Holy Spirit, which makes men willing who formerly were unwilling and reluctant. Now, all of this talk of drawing and dragging reminds me of something that my wife and I witnessed in Mexico City over 25 years ago. We were students down there. And one afternoon, we were riding in a taxi near an infamous black market at the center of the city. The street was narrow, traffic was slow, and on the sidewalk, we saw an elderly man tugging on a fat rope, leaning forward as he tried to walk. Now, we assumed that he was probably pulling a heavy load, a cart of some sort, from the marketplace. But as we nudged forward or inched forward a little bit in traffic, we noticed that he wasn't. He was pulling an elderly woman down the sidewalk. She was lying on her back on a pallet. Her arms were crossed over her chest. The rope was tied around her ankles. She was dead. And he was grieving as he dragged her down the sidewalk. Now this serves as a graphic picture of what it looks like when the father draws and hauls and pulls people to Jesus. 
contrary to the straw man caricatures of, of our critics, the Father does not drag living people to Jesus, kicking and screaming against their will. Rather, the Father drags dead people to Jesus so that they might live. As Jesus said, I will raise them up on the last day. The Father overcomes our resistance. He overcomes our reluctance with the power of His love. He draws us close to Jesus with the cords of His love and bands of kindness. As it is written in the book of Hosea, when Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And the more they were called, the more they went away. The more they went away, they kept sacrificing to the Baals, burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by the arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke, and I bent down to them, and I fed them. Now we see the realization, the fulfillment of that prophecy in Jesus Christ feeding thousands, stooping down to love people, leading them with cords of love. In other words, the Father draws people to Jesus. But He draws people to Jesus who are so weak and so wounded and so wasted that they cannot possibly drag themselves out of their own sin and death. In love, the Father does for us what we cannot do for ourselves so that we may come to Jesus and live. But how shall we live? In this story, the synagogue of Capernaum is starting to look a little like a megachurch. Hundreds, if not thousands of people have come to Jesus for one reason or another. But Jesus makes it clear in the discourse that not all of them have come to Him by faith. In fact, He says to the crowd, you do not believe. And yet there they are. Most have come to Jesus out of curiosity. Others because at that moment it was a trendy thing to do. Others because they expect Jesus might feel some felt need that they have. But it's at this point in the story that very few people have actually come to Jesus because of the Father's love in drawing them. Very few have come to Jesus with a new heart or new spirit. Very few have come to feast on the bread of life. Maybe some are on the way. But like their forefathers, many have eaten the bread and the fish in the wilderness, but they will perish and die because they do not believe in Jesus. They're more satisfied by a crust of bread and dried fish than they are by the true bread of Christ. So it's at this point in the story that Jesus says one of the strangest and one of the creepiest things He's ever said. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now the Jews overreacted. 
They think that Jesus is calling on them to cannibalize Him. And they knew the Bible well enough to know that God's law prohibited the eating and drinking of blood. As it says in Leviticus, you shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. So maybe it sounds to them that what Jesus is saying is a bit like witchcraft or some other pagan ritual. They also knew that cannibalism was a curse, that it was a sign of covenant breaking. And so they dispute among themselves and say, how in the world can this man give us his flesh to eat? The word for dispute simply means to fight with words. Their grumbling has turned into a grudge match. They are actually fighting over the bread of life. And so what we have happening at the synagogue in Capernaum is a bread riot. We actually have a food fight that has broken out in front of Jesus. Now again, I say this many times to you, it is so easy to judge the Jewish people from 2,000 years of distance. But if you could just put yourself in their sandals for five seconds, I think you would understand their confusion and their concern. You see, eating flesh and drinking blood is the horrific kind of thing that their forefathers experienced when their cities were under siege or when they went into exile as slaves. So the image of God the Father taking hungry and thirsty people and dragging them to His Son and telling them to eat His flesh and drink His blood so they may have life verges on the grotesque for them. For us, it's simply the stuff of zombie stories and vampire series. So how could Jesus give His flesh and blood to them? We struggle to understand these things as much as they did. They had their own framework. We have ours. We hear this and we think, oh, Jesus must have been talking about communion, Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. And while there are similarities in these things, Jesus is actually talking about something different than that. In other words, Jesus is not saying whoever takes communion has eternal life. Jesus is saying that whoever consumes the grace and truth of the Word made flesh by faith will live forever. Whoever feasts their souls by faith on the Word of God will have eternal life. Why? Because man does not live by bread alone. Man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we would say especially the Word made flesh. Now there are echoes of the Passover, echoes of the exodus, echoes of the sojourning reverberating through this story. But there's something else going on here. Remember when the people of God went into the wilderness, they worshipped God and they offered all kinds of sacrifices to God, grain offerings and drink offerings among them. The priest would take these offerings and give a token to the Lord on the altar, keep the rest for themselves. So fresh bread and Strong wine were offered up to the Lord as a way of giving thanks and praise, but also a way of providing life for the priests. In this story, Jesus gives thanks and He promises to offer His flesh and His blood for the life of the world. And He gives His flesh as true bread and He gives His blood as true drink to all who draw near to Him by faith. In other words, He gives the food of God and the food of priests to all who come near to Him all whom the Father gives Him in order that they might live. 
In His own mysterious way, Jesus is wanting that crowd, and He wants us and even the world to know the truth about who He is. And the truth is that Jesus is the true and better sacrifice. Jesus is the true and better Passover lamb who will be slaughtered for the sins of the world. And His flesh will be roasted in the judgment of God. And His blood will be smeared on the door frames of our hearts. Jesus is the true and better atoning sacrifice that satisfies God and takes away the sins of the world. Not only our sins, but yes, the sins of the whole world. And Jesus is the true and better offering of bread and wine who gives His blood to gladden the heart of man and gives His flesh to strengthen man's heart. So in the torn flesh and the shed blood of Jesus, God is giving back to us, giving back to the world, giving back to His people all the sacrifices, all the tithes, all the offerings that His people have ever offered to Him. And He does it for the life of the world. Now in a few moments, we who have come to Jesus by faith, we who have been drawn to Jesus by the Father, will be invited to this table. And physically, we will eat bread and we will drink wine, but I want you to know that it's not enough just to eat bread and drink wine with your mouth. We must eat and drink spiritually with our hearts. We must fix our eyes on Jesus crucified and resurrected, and we must feast our souls on the grace and truth of Jesus Christ our Lord. The question is, how will we do that? And the answer is, we will do that the same way we drink living water, and the same way we eat heavenly bread, and the same way we walk in the light and abide in the vine and take up the cross. We will do it spiritually by faith in Jesus Christ. By faith in Christ, we feed upon His body and blood to our spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. We have our union and communion with Him confirmed. We testify and renew our thankfulness and our engagement to God and our mutual love and fellowship with one another as members of the mystical body of Christ. So I urge you with all your heart, not to chew bread and swallow wine with your mouth alone, but to commune with the body and blood of Jesus Christ with your heart, soul, and mind. Under the law, when worshipers made offerings to God, they said, in effect, my life for yours. But under the gospel, Jesus lays down his life. He lays down his flesh and blood for you. And he says to you, in effect, no, my life for yours. So as we come to the table today, let us remember Jesus. He offers himself to you. He makes promises to you. The promises that say, whoever comes to him shall never hunger. Whoever believes in him shall never thirst. For you will be sustained and satisfied by the sacrifice of his life. Whoever feeds on his flesh and drinks his blood becomes one with him and he becomes one with them. So that we can actually say that you are who you eat and drink and you become what you consume. There's an old saying that goes, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. 
You know, the same is true for preaching. We've led you to the bread of life, but we can't make you eat. We've led you to living water, but we can't make you drink. We've led you to the blood of Christ, but we can't make you clean. My hope and prayer for you as a pastor, as a brother, a friend, a father, is that the Father will draw you to Jesus. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will give you an appetite for the flesh and blood of Jesus. That you will believe in the grace and truth of Jesus. And that you will crave the word of Jesus. And that you will desire the gospel of Jesus. And that you will hunger and thirst for Jesus. And I pray that this will happen for you sooner rather than later. In fact, I pray that it will happen for you even Let us pray together. Oh, merciful God, we do not presume to come to your table trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table. But you are the same Lord whose special quality it is always to have mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body, and our souls washed through his most precious blood, and that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. This is our prayer we offer through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen.